He abandoned corporate America to embark on a whole new venture in horror podcasting. Please join your host and his sister for today's episode of Not Your Average Horror Show. Hello, everyone, and happy new year. And our apologies for being a little bit late on this recording because we had some audio problems last time. We had some mysterious stuff going on with the um, recording. After we tried the first one, I played it back, and there was this mysterious audio hum after I thought it was recorded perfectly. So therefore, we got pushed back a couple of weeks. So I'm very sorry about that. I'm not sure if Adrian is. Eh. <laughs> she doesn't care either way. But, but I am very sorry. Yeah. So yeah. So this this was supposed to be our first one of the new year, and it kind of got off to a little bit of a dumpster fire. But <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to think back. It feels so long ago now. As far as what we did on New Year's, I had a couple people over. We played a couple of games, and then they were gone by like ten o'clock. <laughs> yeah, I went to my friend's house, and there was like half the group was supposed to stay until midnight, and then they ended up going to another New Year's party. So that was the whole drama with that. I can't exactly get into the spirit of how it felt back then because it's <laughs> just already become such a distant memory. <laughs> it does feel like a long time ago now, <laughs> unfortunately. But do you remember blacking out or vomiting or anything? Because I know that's no, like there a... was none of that. Okay, well, <laughs> ringing that's... in the new year successfully so far. Yeah, other than the podcast issues. <laughs> Excellent. All right, time to get to it. This is a poorly made British horror movie. Usually, I don't like movies with a foreign flavor. Some exceptions, but this movie is pretty bad. The general premise, and by the way, I'm not sure if I'm used to giving a general premise, Adrian, because so far all we've done on here is movies that everyone in the world knows and has seen a million times, so it's not even necessary. But this obscure gem might need a little background, since even perhaps some of the most savvy horror fans might have missed it. I only know this movie myself because I came across the beta tape of it in my quest for all things vintage a few years ago. Then I heard the dudes in Slaughter Film review it. And by the way... Um, you know, this is the first time mentioning that podcast, which actually doesn't even exist anymore, and I don't even know why. Um, but I used to listen to that podcast all the time. And it was fun listening to those guys, even though, even when they weren't talking about movies, it was still hilarious. They'd talk about, like, their week and recap. But that was one of my earliest influence as to doing a podcast in the first place. But if any of those guys ever listened to mine, then I would know I really made it. Yeah, you were very affected by a slaughter film. Like, you wanted to meet those guys. Yeah. Hence the restraining order. <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah, I could listen to that podcast, and it's it's basically the same theme as we're doing, talking about older horror movies. But um, that was definitely one I could listen to all day. So with this movie in a nutshell, there is a serial killer prowling the streets of London in December in search of anyone dressed as Santa Claus. The killer is obsessed with murdering anyone who dares wear that costume, and it quickly turns into a whodunit as various cardboard actors and characters are introduced and ostensibly could have a reason to do the killing. In the end, when the killer is revealed, let's just say it's not so ironic. There definitely really wasn't much of a twist here. When this character's on screen and you're looking at him, it's like, yeah, he definitely could be the one. Um, and the reason for the killing is a very typical scarred in childhood psychological trauma familiar theme, which um, eventually takes its toll this particular Christmas night years later on this person. And that's a very common theme in horror movies, even among the you know relatively small segment of Christmas horror movies, when you think of Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Christmas Evil. 
Yeah, I'm sure they were going for some kind of Halloween parallel. Sam's the lockup in the institution. Yeah, and even in Halloween, there was not really an explanation either why he chose that particular night to escape instead of all the ones before it in like, why not the year, you know, why not Halloween of uh, 1975 or 73, whatever the case may be. So yeah, Don't Open Until Christmas is about as formulaic as it gets. The good news here is that for those of you who hate suspense, this movie's for you. The minute you think something bad is going to happen, it does. And virtually any time you see a Santa, he dies. There's no suspense or teasing. There's even a scene where a drunk Santa Claus is staggering around outside, and you hear this ominous music, but guess what? It's like it's like a crappy Jaws ripoff theme music. Um, they play this. Yes, shark music for a Santa Claus killer movie. So um, you see the Santa Claus staggering around, and then you see the killer in the background. He kind of subtly walks up to him and shoots him in the mouth. And why a gun? These types of movies aren't called slashers for nothing. When the killer uses, he's already used a spear and, you know, even a shaving instrument and a knife previously in the movie. And now suddenly he's taking out a gun and using it. It just doesn't make any sense. I remember Michael Myers holding a gun in Halloween 4, but then he didn't fire it. He shoved it through someone's stomach. Right. He kind of teased us a little bit. We thought he was going to shoot somebody with a shotgun, but instead he just like shoved it through their stomach, as you see. Um, And that's actually a little prefiguring to next week's episode. Stay tuned. So um, with Don't Open Till Christmas, the victims are pretty bad actors. Um, At least the people who are bad are like the Santa Claus victims. There's a couple of female victims who get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they do a good job of kind of showing that peril on their face. But all the others kind of just sleepwalk up to their death scene while being stalked with not the slightest sense of urgency. Towards the end of the movie, the police send a few guys undercover to try and catch this guy. And these guys literally have knives thrown inches from their head, and there is barely any surprise on their face. No, no yells of shock or anything. They simply look at the knife and do a slow hustle off the screen. So I've actually seen this movie twice. Uh, You saw it once. Mm -hmm. I do have to admit it grew on me ever so slightly the second time. Not sure why, but um, a lot has to do with the fact that it's it's just a British movie. And I know it's it's just hard to get into those at first. Uh, That's not to say that all British movies are poorly made in general. I just can't think of many that I like. Come on, you were just talking about American Werewolf in London the other day. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's there's a lot of ones that people, like, I guess, assume they're British, like the James Bond ones, too. And, you know, they are, but not entirely. There's American backing and American influence to make Americans watch it. And um, I was just, I pulled up a list of movies the other day. It was like the 100 best British movies, and I didn't even notice any real standouts. But uh, Werewolf, yeah, that was good. And that was among the first batch of real hard R-rated movies that I saw when I was first able to start finding a way to watch horror movies. There were a few scenes in there that really surprised me. Those dream sequences where he gets his throat slit and then he sees himself in a stretcher waking up with fangs and his eyes wide open. Those images stayed with me for a while, just like like I was saying in Nightmare on Elm Street 1, our first podcast with all of its gross-out scenes. So, yeah... The, the James Bond movies, I, I don't know if they're truly British, but I do love them. And um, I did see them on the list. But, yeah, not really British. And um, there's just too much American influence. And, you know, I mean, what else 
what else is there really? I mean, four weddings and a funeral. You know something? I will say, though, that Australia, I believe, did something that Britain did not. At least from what I conclude, after you take out the James Bonds, the Harry Potters, and whatever else was about Brits but not truly a British movie, Australia made a purely Australian movie series that reached worldwide fame with no pandering to Americans. Do you have any clue what I'm talking about, Adrian? Mm-hmm. Well, that action-packed, car-crashing, bone-crunching, balls-to-the-wall action, <laughs> you know, the, that series featuring that hunk of meat, Mel Gibson, <laughs> Mad Max, and its sequel, The Road Warrior. Please. <laughs> well, you know, naming one British movie that, that even comes close, at least purely British. I mean, I, I can't think of any. I might be missing something, but evidently it can't be too obvious. Um, hopefully, we don't get any shit from our British listenership over that comment. <laughs> yes, Nigel Bigglesworth is sitting in his flat on the Thames right now, pounding his fist in anger. <laughs> <laughs> Eating his crumpets. I guess the only thing missing is that we didn't say that in an accent. <laughs> but really, Harry Potter? I kind of think that's like the James Bonds. It's just Americanized and kind of like they, they made it that way to mm-hmm. appeal to Americans. J.K. Rowling is British. The kids are all British. Yeah, but the director, Chris Columbus. But he didn't direct all of them. Speaking of Chris Columbus, that guy, he had a hell of a career. I, see, I thought he was a flash in the pan at first when he came and directed Home Alone and the sequels. I just always thought those movies were destined to be a hit no matter who was directing. I mean, come on, you've got a natural talent kid actor and you had Joe Pesci who doesn't require any direction. You just let him do his thing. You know, what did Columbus really do? Set up the fan to blow the chicken feathers or call action on a paint can and a second paint can? (laughs) Just kidding. But that's why I never thought he was legit. And his name sounds fake. Oh, by the way, though, he directed Adventures in Babysitting, which was, you know, better than average of its kind. He wrote for The Goonies, uh, Men Gremlins, and then Harry Potter when he came and directed those, of course, that really stamped his name in the directorscape of Hollywood. I read that he was supposed to direct Christmas Vacation, um, but he had a fight with Chevy Chase early in the movie, which is really strange. And that's when the opportunity came up for Home Alone. But boy, talk about a can't-miss scenario given either one of those films to direct. You know, I wonder if Chevy Chase ever gets down on his knees and gives thanks for Christmas Vacation. I mean, that movie is pretty much guaranteed that his presence will be seen like every holiday season, and it's just adored by people of all different types. Yeah, I mean, I know I watch it every year, and um, it, it pretty much has immortalized his faces on, on people's TVs every December. You know, I just watched it a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, or maybe he hates it because that was the last time he did anything noteworthy. Like, he sure didn't do dick after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not at all, really. So, um All right. Well, I guess we should get back to talking about this piece of shit. Actually, wait. One more tangent first. I can't resist. I really did mean to discuss this. And it's pointless probably to bring it up because I guarantee nobody's ever saw it. But it's called The Final Option. And it it came out in 1982. The opening scene was a bunch of anti-nuclear war protesters. They're on some busy street in London, and they're all being rowdy, and they have their signs, and they're doing that chant, one, two, three, four, we don't want a nuclear war. And there's one guy with a megaphone who's, you know, especially rowdy and cocky down in the streets. But across the street, up on like a third or fourth floor in, in one of the apartment buildings, we can see this shady character um, within, and he's he's got a crossbow. And he's loading an arrow into that crossbow, and he aims it out the window right at that one protester with a megaphone. Next thing you know, he shoots it, 
and that guy with the megaphone gets an arrow. It goes right through the megaphone into his mouth and then exits the back of his head. And a streak of blood runs out the end of the megaphone. Mm, lovely. <laughs> oh, well, by the way, would, would it surprise you that Ronald Reagan had a viewing of that movie in the White House upon its release? And apparently he really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that why you liked it? Because Reagan did? <laughs> yeah, because Reagan did. That's why I liked it. So, uh, okay. So let's get back to Don't Open Until Christmas. Looks like we've avoided talking about this long enough. Let's address the unintentional humor. There's a very laughable scene where a man is dressed like Santa Claus early in the movie at a Christmas party. And it's so ridiculous. A party attendee wearing this weird shrunken head mask and he's carrying a spear. He infiltrates the group. And, um, you know, they're kind of like, just doing their party thing, talking and socializing. And the next thing you know, the one guy with a spear, he just launches it right at the head of the Santa Claus. And it clearly, the spear clearly goes behind the Santa Claus's head. Um, so far away, it looks so unrealistic because the next shot that you see, it shows the Santa Claus from the front angle and the spear has come out the front of his mouth, which looks nothing like the action that happened in the scene before it. Um, and it's so hilarious. It looks like you're watching an, a high school play with a sword fight. The guy gets stabbed by the sword, and he kind of just, like, tucks it underneath his arm. So from the side angle, it looks like he got stabbed. It was as bad as that. And then, you know, after that happens, the guy gets killed. The partygoers, they just stand there, and they look down at the body. They don't scatter in horror, which you'd think would happen. They're just kind of, like, shaking their heads, like, oh, what a shame. You know, as if somebody just spilled their drink on the floor. It totally looks like they might have filmed this scene last in the movie, and perhaps they were so tired of working on it that they just said, fuck it, and didn't give a shit how bad the thing looked. Now, there's a woman we're introduced to who we learn is the daughter of that man who was killed at the party. Her male friend offers her support the next day, but then inexplicably drags her to the sleazy friend's photography studio where he's snapping pictures of a naked female subject. And then, to her astonishment, the the photographer and the model and even the male friend all try to coax this woman, who just lost her father, into stripping naked for the photo shoot. In the process, they pull the sexy Santa suit out of the closet intended for one of the women to wear. And at that point, she just storms out. And the friend says to the photographer, what did you show her that suit for? You know her dad just died wearing a Santa costume? Seriously? As if, like, that was the only thing wrong with that? Why are guys like that? Like, why do they assume a woman will just strip down simply because another woman is doing it or that women can easily be so talked into doing something like that? Yeah, well, it definitely does seem like something that was very um, prominent in 80s movies of this, more like the 80s comedies, mm-hmm. you know, like like Porky's or Bachelor <laughs> Party, something like that. But I don't think it represents most guys, I don't think. But we do see this in other films and in culture. Um, And the fact even it's here that somebody thinks it's plausible. There was one scene where I didn't know whether to laugh at it or to be impressed by it. But the part where the killer hooks up the battery cables to that vintage car and then that police officer Powell touches it and he bends his back about as far as it can go and he goes (laughs) for about five minutes. That's that's actually the photograph we're using. Um, I selected a still of that to represent this movie on the website. So you can look forward to that if you want to check it out. Um, that actually caught me off guard because it was the only realistic part of the whole movie. 
it seemed, um, even though it was kind of funny at the same time. But it's like, is this really happening? And um, it was one of those moments where I think I might have been dozing off. And then when you snap out of consciousness, whatever you're looking at feels even more real than it really is. If that makes sense, I don't know. Well, that noise he made, it's what I wanted to do halfway through this. <laughs> I can't even do it. It's so funny. Poor Powell, though. He truly was the only likable character in this movie. I was sad. The chief was like a sleaze, and there was barely any other likable characters in the film. The male friend of the girl whose father died was a total sleaze because he wanted her to get naked on camera, you know, the day after her father was killed. And then um, all the other women in the movie were prostitutes or airheads. So, yeah, I can't think of anybody else who was in this pile of shit. Um, and this is why I can't totally trash the movie, though, because it did make me feel something for Powell. <laughs> but you literally just laughed your ass off at him being electrocuted. <laughs> I know. But I guess that just speaks to some kind of complexity in my psychological profile. I can feel extreme sympathy, but extreme hilarity at someone's situation at the same time. Mm, psycho. <laughs> I'll pretend I didn't hear that. <laughs> so the two officers, Powell and Harris, I guess, they actually were both of them were pretty good actors. Um, and that somewhat made the movie more watchable. Incidentally, the guy who played Harris, Edmund Purdom, was a pretty legit actor who was called in to replace such high-profile actors as... Marlon Brando and Mario Lanza, like if they were um, scheduled to be in a movie or expected to, and for some reason they couldn't do it, he was, I guess, regarded as as a good enough actor to replace either one of those guys. And um, Mario Lanza evidently was a pretty high-profile actor who, who died, unfortunately, in 1959, which is why we don't hear much about him. And would it surprise you to know that right here in Philadelphia is where Lanza was born, and we have a Mario Lanza Boulevard right near the airport, and a museum for him right on Montrose Street in South Philly and a marker to signify where his home used to stand on Christian Street. Hmm. Are you just adding filler to this because there isn't enough to say about a movie in a little half hour slot? <laughs> Funny you should say that. But no, it just seemed like something interesting at the time, so I included it. Hmm. But, um, you know, movies like this kind of movie is an easy target, really. Um, you know, it's easy to forget that, that you can make fun of horror movies and it's it's it just comes naturally but sometimes you just kind of have to let yourself go and open your mind to them and forget about the corniness and then if you do that the movie isn't bad if you go into it just thinking it's going to be like you know a dumpster fire which i guess i didn't do it any favors because that's kind of what i've been saying throughout this whole thing but you know if you just kind of like you know just let yourself be open to it a little bit then you can start enjoying it somewhat and um the one thing about it i really do like the most is the name it just um, it just takes one of those simplistic warnings from a parent to a child, you know, with those gifts from the Christmas tree. Don't open until Christmas. And it turns it into something more deeply sinister sounding, which now whenever I hear that, I can't even see it any other way. Um, and the cover art, I think, is pretty good. But that was always something that was characteristic of the 80s movies, that they, they did have good cover art, but they weren't necessarily good films. So since that was our first movie that we did in the new year, um, we intended to talk about, you know, some new year stuff. We covered that a little bit in the beginning. So I guess by now we just forgotten everything else that, <laughs> that would have been relevant back then. So with that said, um, tonight, I'm trying to think, I don't really have anything planned. It's Saturday as we're recording this now. I probably should have something going on, but Kate and mm -hmm. I went out last night to a local bar. Oh, wow. There was a bunch of old people 
at there and they were acting really rowdy. I'm not even making this up, but they were just like, you know, you ever been to a bar before where they're playing just like all 70s classic rock and then the oldest people in the crowd are just like shouting out the name of the song as it comes <laughs> yeah. out as if it takes some really great talent to do that. <laughs> That's going to be you before you know it. <laughs> well, see, I know better. I'm looking at them thinking to myself, that's kind of pathetic because <laughs> it's like oh this is sticks or oh. this is led zeppelin and i'm like yeah no shit <laughs> and they're just but i mean who am i to talk i, I sound like an old man myself trying to laugh it's laughing something he's just trying to have a good time so i felt kind of bad and one of them came up to us the rowdiest one of all and asked us if we were having a good time too which we did you know oh. it was a nice uh nice dinner we had there it was pretty packed and we even commented that you know this really feels like things are kind of back to normal like not one person's wearing a mask it just felt mm-hmm. like you know any random day pre-covid mm. so well, that was nice yeah we hadn't been out for a while so that was a nice uh change up yeah. there i guess he didn't hear you shouting out any band names so he wasn't sure if you guys were enjoying <laughs> yourselves that could be <laughs> he seemed really fucked up but you know maybe he was more astute than i gave him credit for <laughs> <laughs> so how about you anything fun going on tonight um Well, I guess fun is a relative term, but I have like a belated holiday party with my coworkers to go to. Okay. Um, Yeah, the party planning committee, we literally have a party planning committee. They decided on axe throwing. Axe throwing. Yeah, is like this thing to do um, for our team. And it's not company sponsored. So if you huh. want to throw an axe, you have to pay $40. Oh, and, wow. This yeah. is all sounding like weirder and weirder. The fact that you're having a holiday party when it's January, what, 14th now? Yeah, I guess and... they didn't want to deal with like trying to make reservations in the throes of like the holiday season. But uh, okay, save some money that way. Yeah. But they're yeah. making you pay for it too. So right. saving even more money. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's nothing that I've like ever had like an extreme want to do especially if it's going to cost me $40 it just seems like something I'm probably going to be bad at (laughs) right axe throwing that's been around for a little while I've I've never done it myself I know it's like a big corporate team building type thing yeah and I don't know it just like it gets weirder because there's like alcohol involved I was always surprised at that too (laughs) yeah like it's been brought up at my company before but we inevitably just didn't get around to doing it it's like mini golf we're just we end, just end up going somewhere and drinking usually yeah it's a nice dinner i mean honestly mini golf sounds more appealing like, <laughs> than handling a weapon near all of your coworkers. oh is this outdoors or indoors it's indoors okay yeah now not to freak you out or anything mm-hmm. but this makes me think of this video i saw on youtube where this girl probably in her 20s she's standing there you can tell it's her first time doing it so she has an axe and she's throwing it and somehow when it hits the target or the wall or whatever the thing bounces right back at her and it's going right for her head if she hadn't ducked it probably would have hit her right between the eyes oh god that's horrifying it's such (laughs) a weird you should be yeah i'm gonna be in my own horror movie (laughs) (laughs) i don't know go there and share that video with people and maybe they'll change their mind about it yeah maybe i could spend 40 dollars on other things and not potentially endangering my life right. <laughs> or others <laughs> was this one of those deals where it's just like it's voluntary but they make you kind of feel like you should be doing it i mean they did say like oh you don't have to throw axes like there's darts and stuff too but i don't know i feel like the peer pressure is gonna get to me <laughs> right i know you have to participate otherwise yeah <laughs> or else 
Right. <laughs> You're not part of the team. <laughs> Been there. I'm sure it'll be fun, you know. Or Fingers just start crossed. drinking right off the bat, like just get totally yeah, just get too drunk, drunk, and they'll be like, "Oh, axe. we're not letting her throw an axe." So just sit <laughs> or maybe down. I'd be better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't maybe. be as stiff. <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy that. Uh, yeah, I'll try. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So um, anyway, that wraps up uh, this podcast for the week. Don't open until Christmas. Our apologies again for the delay. That's been two weeks now, <laughs> but everything seems to be okay at the moment. So. Everyone's been holding their breath for the next episode. (laughs) Yes, they have. (laughs) All right. Until next time.